Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Let's talk about myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv, here with another conversation episode. You guys know by now how much I absolutely love that I get to do this every week or, you know, 
most weeks these days. Next week, we will be going back to a reading of the Argonautica, so I won't be leaving you hanging there. But this week, I have the wonderful Dr. Victoria Austin. She teaches at the University of Winnipeg, specifically a lot of Roman stuff, but also recently taught a course on Greek mythology in general. And so this kind of started out of that. In general, we were discussing uh, reception of Greek myth and, and ancient Greece, so movies and books specifically, um, but our conversation devolved a bit into generally just mythology. What makes it so interesting and fascinating and kind of a, a lot of the things that I, I spout to you guys now and then, but as a conversation, and I think that that's really fascinating looking at those little intricacies and everything, especially from somebody who is actually a PhD, actually teaches these things. So really fascinating to hear about it um, from a teaching perspective, as well as just a general, you know, passion for the classics. Uh, we do talk all about books uh, of classical myth that have come out. So specifically, so many of the um, more woman-centered, like feminist style retellings, just given giving women voices. That was the intention of this. We talked a lot about those books. Uh, I have included a list of the books we mentioned in the description of this episode in case you want to look into them. Um, but generally, yeah, just a fascinating conversation about myth and reception, ancient versus less ancient and all the things that come along with that. I'll let you get to it. Generally, just a fascinating conversation. Victoria and I have been Twitter friends for a while, so it was so nice to speak with her and, and learn all of these things and have this incredible discussion all about this thing I love so fucking much. Conversations, the many faces of myth, classical reception with Dr. Victoria Austin. Thank you so much for, for talking with me today about classical reception in novels. Yes, I'm very excited. I think it'll be really fun. This is something that is relatively new to me, I think, in, in many ways. And it's something that over the past sort of 18 months, I've just become really, really interested in. It's something that I didn't get to experience a lot when I was a student. So I've come at it more afresh as a teacher and just having this opportunity to explore these kind of issues with myth in in class has just been great and so anytime I get to chat about these kind of novels I'm like yay <laughs> good yeah I, I kind of feel the same like they definitely weren't really a thing when I was in university Song of Achilles I think had come out but I hadn't read it yeah I don't remember when it came out I think actually looking at the dates of when they were published, there's obviously mm -hmm. been so many of these classical reception novels that have come out in the last, you know, five or so years. But when I think, when I look at the publication dates, there weren't many when I was at doing my undergraduate. And also actually, I don't know if this is a UK, North America divide, but I actually never took a myth class um, mm. as part of my, they are not, 
they seem to be very much a staple in the North American system of, of classics and at university, particularly as an undergraduate um, starter course to get people interested. Not so much, well, not in my experience anyway. So although I obviously looked at these texts and stories in individual classes, you know, looking at literature, I had never ever taken a devoted myth class. So when I had the opportunity to teach it, I was like, oh, for me, this is also the first time where I've approached all of these stories from that angle of thinking about myth, as opposed to, oh, this time I'm thinking about genre or this particular poet or, you know, all of those kind of issues to actually think more broadly in terms of myth and the process of myth making and how we then receive that and change that over time. That was something that I've, as I said, I've only really discovered in the past 18 months from having the opportunity to teach it. And so in many ways, I feel like I've gone on a journey a bit with my students, which is really nice because the novels that we've looked at in class, they're, they're new and fresh to me as well. So I'm not you know, bored of them already. It's not like the Odyssey where I've read a thousand times. <laughs> you or should the, never be bored of the Odyssey. Yeah. Um, or, <laughs> or the Aeneid. I mean, I, I do... I mean, I, I do get bored with the catalogue of ships in the, in the Iliad, which I, I tell all of my students, you know, you have permission to skip this because unless, <laughs> unless you're doing upper level Greek and, you know, you really want to get into the in-depth analysis of, you know, why Homer's doing this and the language, I'm just like, oh, I think we can skip over. And especially in the pandemic, I was like, we don't have time for this, guys. <laughs> I was like, we do not. Don't waste your energy. So, um, so yeah, it's been just super fun to think about a lot of these stories stories in this fresh fresh light yeah yeah that's so interesting I'm surprised that uh that you don't have like exclusive mythology classes we had I think only two so it was like Greek mythology and then classical which yes. was like more broadly um which I obviously took because yeah. that's like most of why I started my <laughs> classes degree in yeah. the first place but that's yeah that's so interesting to me because I feel like that is where so many people get into yeah. the classical world in general. Yeah, and I think, I don't know, like I said, I don't know if it's a UK, North America divide, if it's just my own personal experience, but I came into classics very much through, I went to a school where I learned Latin, you know, you got Latin classes at the age of 11. So this is, that's that's how I entered classics, very much from that, we're learning the classical languages framework. And so, yeah, the differences in the systems are, you know, something that I find really interesting. And when I moved here and everyone was like, well, myth is one of these staple courses. And I was thinking about teaching. I was like, I've never even taken a myth course. And then it kind of blew my mind. And I was thinking about it. And I thought, well, this is really exciting because I get to tell all these fun stories. And, you know, I see I see the classes very much as, you know, we're going to have fun story time and then we're going to pick these stories apart and think about how they've been represented and, and how we can look at them in different ways. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really like these novels, because they're taking these stories that, you know, many of which are in the public imagination. We we know them so well and we think we're really familiar with them. And then suddenly they've been turned around and, you, and you're seeing these things from a totally different perspective, especially when we get these female-centered or female-narrated stories, I think is really interesting because to take it from a, a male-oriented perspective to a female-oriented perspective, I think it just kind of throws all these questions, you know, it blows everything wide open and it's really exciting. Yeah, it just adds so much to it. I mean, 
I just looked up the date of Song of Achilles, um, and it came out in 2012, which uh. is when I finished my degree. Um, and yeah, and I feel like I, that that was great timing on it. It yes. was like it literally just like started <laughs> when I kind of came out into that. But I actually, so I came into classics like I'd, I'd learned about it in school because we don't have any schools yeah. like you have to go to a very fancy private school in order to learn those languages well admittedly I was very lucky to go to a very fancy school <laughs> so it's not super common but but yeah you're right I think it's slightly more common in the UK so. yeah I, from what I've learned it does seem at least more common definitely wasn't an option yeah. at my like silly little school in <laughs> Canada um but I like learned enough about mythology I actually just sort of re like been remembering lately i had a, a teacher in grade seven who was the absolute best and everyone loved him and he had us watch the mini series of the odyssey oh the, the old with, one from the nine is it from the 90s yeah, from the oh, 90s i had to watch that in school too it's so bad but also well, so great and it must have like fairly recently come out and i'm pretty sure he recorded it on vhs yeah. and like wheeled the thing into because i went to like in grades, if I was watching it in grade seven, we're talking like the year 2000, maybe 2001. And it, it's like, yeah, it, it, it just must have been like such a process for him to have us watch this. And I think like, were we fast forwarding through the commercials like in class? So I had that exact same experience, but I was obviously I'm older than you giving away my age. Yeah, I was probably like 17 when this happened. And I do have a very, very specific memory of, yeah, you know, it's the end of semester and you're doing a fun thing in class and your teacher wheels in the TV and then you watch this Odyssey series. We'd been reading the Odyssey in my classical civilization class during my A-levels. And then, yeah, it was the, like the fun thing at the end of the term <laughs> that we that we watched this Odyssey miniseries. And I actually show some some clips of that in my in my class because particularly I know we're going to talk about Cersei a bit more um the the Cersei part of that series is just so cringe it's just so bad. oh I need to find it yeah it's um yeah I mean I I um I'm always amazed actually thinking about the Odyssey that there hasn't been more there haven't been more adaptations of um the Odyssey obviously we have the film Troy which I have many issues with <laughs> um, as all my students know um, but I, yeah I'm always amazed that the Odyssey hasn't been developed in that same way because to me like there's so many fruitful avenues like that would make a really good film or a mini series or something like that I'm yeah always surprised that that hasn't caught the imagination in the same way. That's like a problem with all movies and TV book classics is that they never actually pick an existing story that is like ripe for interpretation. Yeah. I mean, I, I could talk about the sh absolute shit interpretations of classical stories forever because none of them are good. None of them. <laughs> and none of them like stay true to the myth, which like I understand why sometimes there's a necessity, but they don't actually pick things that are better. They yes. always <laughs> fuck with the myth and make it shittier. Like I'm yeah. thinking notably of Clash of the Titans. It's absolute garbage the myth of perseus if you were to actually tell the myth in a movie would be amazing yes right and this is this is the thing that i uh, i actually taught an ancient world through film class and you know we've had Ooh. we've had many of these discussions about you know sometimes particularly with things like myth and you know there are various interpretations and i think there there is plenty of room for creative license but the, the choices they make in these creative license. I'm thinking, why are you doing this? Prime example in the Troy film, Achilles and Patroclus, of course they're cousins. I mean, 
dolphins. I, I could spend the entire podcast just talking about this. Um, I mean, why just... they didn't? They could just be friends. <laughs> yes, there's literally no reason to make them related. Like, thank you. Sure, homophobia. Like, they weren't going to be lovers in yeah, 2004. Exactly. With Brad Pitt, but they did not need to make them related. Like, it, like <laughs> it. It was. They went so far away from the truth. I'm like, what they. A guy can't even have like a BFF. Like, yeah. what? Why not? You know, they can. Yeah, the the cousins thing. Really, yes, a very very hard time with that. And um, yeah, and then also in that film, how they merge with uh, Briseis and Cassandra, kind of like all into one character with Rose Byrne. I'm like, oh, why? Like, you just yes, many many issues, particularly yeah, as you said you can definitely make changes and there are many times when I think they are valid and they can spark really good conversations. And I think many of the novels that have come out recently do that. And I mm-hmm. think the novels, are, maybe it's the medium, I don't know, that they seem to be much more successful than maybe the TV, different expectations, audience expectations, maybe. More women involved. Ma- yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe also that. Um and yeah, but the the TV and the film ones can often go very, very wrong, I think. <laughs> this actually acts as a good point of comparison to these novels, which, as I said, I think, I wonder if it's the medium, you know, they have more time to go into these characterizations. But I feel like so many of the novels of classical reception that have come out recently have done a really great job at, yes, there is creative license you know they have they have changed elements but as I'm reading these texts you know I feel yeah I I can believe that this is a valid interpretation of this story or especially ones that are told from a first person perspective I'm like well you're just imagining what that character would feel like especially Madeline Miller obviously Mm -hmm. Song of Achilles is first person perspective with Patroclus and then Circe with Circe I mean I've had this conversation with my students a lot that, you know, they read Circe and they read the Odyssey. And obviously both of those texts have the interaction between Odysseus and Circe. But in both cases, they're told from a first person perspective. The Odyssey segment is part of Odysseus's narration to the Phaeacians and Circe, the whole thing is in first person narration. And I think it really raises that question of, well, if they're both inherently biased in some way, because they're both, you know, which one do we trust more and why? Um, And why do we maybe feel empathy for one character or not? And how does this change our interpretation? And that's why I think when we focus too much on, oh, is this staying true to this, you know, core myth? Well, if we're playing with different perspectives and first person narration, I think it's just a really interesting thing to explore. I, I, I get really frustrated when, you know, some people want to focus a lot on, well, there's this kind of canonical version of the story. And I'm like, well, yes, there is, but that doesn't mean that we can't reimagine it in some way. And I think also there's a whole debate about, well, yeah, we think that there's this canonical version of these stories, but we don't know what has been lost, you know, and that entire process of the materials we have now and the versions, you know, we don't, we don't know how many different versions of these stories were floating around. We may think that the standard version of a myth is the standard version just because that happened to be the version that survived, you know, and is talked Mm -hmm. about. And there's so many issues that go into that in terms of, you know, which text survived, why, who, who's, 
who's behind all of these things. And so I, I just, I just never see the problem so much with trying to do something different because I think that's part of that process of myth making that it's constantly evolving and you know we can make a myth what we want it to mean in in many ways absolutely I mean that's so as this podcast has gone on and I have gotten deeper into the stories but also just the history and basically just you know, the longer this goes, the smarter I become, the smarter people I talk to. Like I, I look back at four years ago and I'm just like, oh, you had no idea what yeah. you're doing. Just no idea what you're talking about. Like the things I, I know I've said that I don't ever want to listen to again. Cause I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, you probably said with such certainty, all of these different things that are total nonsense. But the thing I harp on now so much is exactly that. It's what do we have versus what do we not have? Exactly. And from so many different points of view too, like, I mean, my go-to would be the patriarchy. The fact that like, I'm sure women were telling stories amongst themselves and we don't have them. And I desperately want to know what they are, but we don't have them. And that doesn't mean that that was the whole canonical story. just like what some dude wrote down. More often than not, it's luck about whether we have them or it's just pure bias. Like, well, he see it. He's the one we're going to copy and recopy and copy and recopy. And that's why we have him. But like, he was just some angry dude out in (laughs) Beosha who like particularly (laughs) had things against women. And like, we don't, we don't know if his version was even like particularly well known. Exactly. We know it was well known, but like well accepted or so many different things that like, yeah, there's just so many big question marks or, if a version that we would be considered to be canon or or just the the you know original myth, I use that yeah. in enormous quotation marks because it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, often comes from like a play yes. because the plays were so popular. But playwrights were doing what these novelists were doing. We just don't know what they were working off of, and therefore we don't know what they changed. Yeah, and I mean you only have to look at you know if you think about depictions of the same character in different novels in in different plays um between different playwrights you are you know the way that the kind of Oresteia trilogy is framed in Homer in the Odyssey is very different to how you know the fifth century tragedies depict that story there's you know and and both of those are considered like these you know canon depictions but you know the Clytemnestra in one is not the same as the Clytemnestra in another so And especially going back to this contrast between Madeline Miller's Circe novel and the uh, the Odyssey, when we have that interaction between Odysseus and Circe, because we're getting it from different perspectives, it's like, well, just because in Madeline Miller's Circe, we're seeing this different characterization of Odysseus, doesn't make it any less true. It's just different. And it's different because it's being told from a different perspective. Like he's, he's not the one saying it. (laughs) Like we, honest to God, like we want to stop listening to you, Odysseus. Like you've been ranting on for a very long time. Um, And, and so I don't think, I don't think it's being disingenuous to show him from a potential other perspective. And I actually think it makes him and all of the characters just more multifaceted that we get Mm -hmm. these different interpretations because you think, oh, well, their actions are presented in this way in one text, but how about how they're presented in another text? And who decides which one of those is more valid or, as you said, you know, original or true in, in very large quotation marks? I think, yeah, it's it's just not that simple. I think it would be it would be great and simple if we're like, this is the definitive version of this myth, but it, it's storytelling. It is not that simple. 
No, I mean, it's the thing that comes up all the time with Medusa. You mm. know, uh, the anger that evokes out of men on the internet when you say anything about her because they will always find a way to tell you you're wrong. <laughs> and I, I love it. And it it's one of my favorite things to taunt <laughs> these days because I because I know so much because I can be like, okay, well, here are the first, the, the fivest oldest extant sources on Medusa. This yeah. is what they say. So what do you have to say to me? And then, you know, it, there's just so many different things. and But people will always try to say one is right or wrong. It's like, no, there are things that are wrong, but only because they don't appear anywhere in the sources. Yes. So I can say that that's wrong, but otherwise, like, zip it. Yeah. And I think one of the really fun things about myth is sometimes the ambiguity. And I think a lot of these reception, I think receptions of myth are really clever when they play with that ambiguity because if something's ambiguous, you can't say, well, I've decided to interpret it in this way you can't say whether that's right or wrong because there's there's a gap there and and I really like when people choose to explore that gap and I think that's what Madeline Miller does so well she kind of takes these well-known characters that we have this one perspective of we have this different opinion but there's there's enough of a gap or an ambiguity there in the ancient sources to create something around it and you know most of the students that I've come across that have read these kind of novels they, when they read it, a lot of their feedback is, well, yeah, we know that this is a creative story. There's been creative license. But as I was reading it, I still felt like, yeah, I can believe this. This is this seems true to the mythical world in general. It's not so far outside the realm of possibility. And I, I think that that's um, that's maybe the line that you that you kind of play with. Yeah. Well, I think Song of Achilles is the perfect example of yeah. that, if not going far beyond yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Where, like, we now have this world on the internet that is, like, 100% convinced yeah. <laughs> that that Achilles and Patroclus had a relationship. Yeah. Like, there are so many Twitter accounts devoted yeah. to them as a couple. Like, it is a thing. Yeah. And I don't think that's, you know, necessarily good or bad. Like, I think there's a lot of people who think it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, I think... It's, there's no harm in making this connection with these characters and seeing it this way and and having that be the way that you connect with yeah. them and then therefore holding on to it that way like i'll admit like i like cersei but song of achilles to me is art oh uh, yeah and i just i i just think it's done so well like it had me convinced it had me then reading the iliad and thinking like oh my god yeah guys yeah. <laughs> like i just love them <laughs> And I think that that's that's such a powerful thing that books can do, and that so many of these novels on reception of of the classics are doing like in varied ways with so many different stories. And it's funny I started saying this, and I went wildly off topic, but I got into my degree because I wrote a novel about Greek mythology when I was like twenty, and and I had like had this whole plan of never going back to school after I graduated high school, I was like, I don't need it. Yeah. And then I wrote this novel <laughs> and then I tried to get this novel published and I was like, Ooh, maybe I want to work in publishing, but also now I obsessively love Greek mythology. So I'll get a classics degree too. And, and from there I've like ended up finding myself in this world, which is very different, but I'm still kind of like obsessed with getting this novel published. And now I live in this world where it's like perfect time. Yeah. But I can't actually get it good enough that I, that I want it when I wrote the one I wrote when I was 20. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just yeah I mean I think that they just do so many beautiful things and there are you you can do so much really deep in the actual mythology and then you can also expand upon it in so many ways and like you say like we just don't really know and so 
take what you want and build on it. And I think that, yeah, if you, if you keep it within that line of what is believable, yes. then you're ma- you just have this perfect thing. And it, it's the believability. And I think you're right. I mean, there is nothing in the ancient sources with Achilles that definitively says either way about his relationship. So what's wrong with interpreting it at one extreme? What's wrong with interpreting it at the other? And as you said, if it allows you to connect with these characters and explore them in a way that means something to you and gets you engaged in the material, then that's great. And I think obviously with Song of Achilles, very much in in that sense, it spoke to that LGBTQ community and, and said, you know, there is space for you within classics. And I think that's so great. And similarly with Circe, so many of my female students said, you know, it was so great just to read a novel that was set in the ancient world, but it was like from a female perspective. They're mm-hmm. like, they're like, we love Greek mythology. We love the ancient world, but it's very male heavy. It's very male dominated. And like, we're not discounting that that's a thing. And we're not saying, you know, sometimes I get really frustrated when people say, oh, well, you're trying to put, you know, modern ideas onto the ancient world. And I'm like, but again, it's just thinking about it from a different perspective. And if it allows you to connect with those stories, so many, so many of my students have said, oh, it made me go back and reread, you know, parts of the Odyssey again, because it it made me rethink them. And it made me Mm -hmm. rethink the character of Odysseus and some parts of his character in the Odyssey that I was like, oh, I hate him there. Or I don't understand why he's done that. Having someone lay out an alternative perspective on his actions, I think then allows them to develop their own thoughts about, well, how do I interpret this character? You know, I don't, there isn't necessarily one factual interpretation of how are we meant to view Odysseus as a man? And Mm -hmm. so, so I think expanding people's awareness of there being these multifaceted characters and multifaceted perspectives on these characters I just yeah I just don't see how that can't be a positive thing there's like more classics for everyone more mythology for everyone I mean that's my whole life right now yeah and that I've encountered that um like I would say like less so lately weirdly the bigger my podcast gets the less criticism I get well that's a good sign I, I know right I'll take it yeah yeah, I mean, so often it's like people have complained to me because I've put modern ideals onto the ancient world or or like like the the number of people that will excuse the assaults by Zeus because of that and I'm like, you know, they thought it was bad too, right? Like they they definitely thought it was bad. There are a lot of in, like certainly not all of them they didn't view all of them as assault yeah. and that's fine, but like there are definitely somewhere even the ancient sources sympathize with the woman here (laughs) like well and and also even if they're not sympathizing with the woman I mean you only have to look at some of the language in Ovid's metamorphosis like Mm. he makes it very clear that these are violent actions yes obviously we can have a conversation about did Ovid think that was okay or not that's one conversation but but to say that it wasn't violent that I mean you only have to look at the language to know oh especially yeah especially in metamorphosis you're right like absolutely I I mean his are the most visceral the most obviously like this is violent assault um but even like I like I've been reading some of Plutarch's life of Theseus 
for well, I was well, for that, his episodes. That sounds and also, riveting. <laughs> <laughs> I love it because he definitely like there are huge chunks where Plutarch is like this guy's a dick. Yeah. Like, <laughs> or my favorite is that he he's so often trying to sort out what he believes to be fact from fiction because mm. he's like, well, Theseus obviously existed, yeah. and so what what did he do? And versus what was myth? And you're like, okay, like this is a really interesting way of looking at yeah. it from this ancient world where like he's you know hundreds and of years after the height of Athens and and also like coming at it from this totally different perspective of not idolizing Theseus and trying to figure it's just all I mean it's all so fascinating but you can absolutely see that they had their own ideals they just had different words and understandings for it than we did but yeah to suggest that that we can't criticize or or like put our modern you know understanding of things on the ancients is ridiculous and also inherently like why yeah give me one reason why I think I can do whatever I want (laughs) and I think that's really interesting what you said about Plutarch because I think we sometimes have this idea that you know the ancient world is just like one world where you know Mm. this is spanning a large period of time so like even you know someone like Plutarch he's already having that same kind of reflective conversation and analysis that we still have today about this divide between, you know, what is myth? What is history? How much can we take as, you know, quote unquote real? How much of it is this is simply a story? And and to say that they weren't grappling with that at the time, you know, already by the time of Plutarch, so these stories have already gone through so many levels of interpretation that we aren't even aware of. And and we kind of think that they just kind of sprouted out of Athens, like fully formed in the fifth century. And it's like, well, there's like a lot of stuff that happened before then uh, to get to these stories. And, you know, you, you just have to think about the amount of Greek tragedies that we know there were just based on how many festivals there were and how many plays versus how many plays we actually have remaining. Oh my God. Like what don't we have? Right. I mean, I mean, oh, the Library of Alexandra. <laughs> you know what? Oh, what? What don't we know? Um, but yeah, so it's like part of it is look. We don't. We don't know. Something. Something could have like completely blown our mind and like thrown everything wide open. So yeah, I just think that's why I, I'm all for like analyzing the text on their own terms and I do this a lot with Ovid and obviously Ovid can be very very problematic because of the language because of the sexual violence um but if we want to have conversations about what that means to us today that is not turning our back on as you said quote unquote the true version um (laughs) it is it's having a different conversation it's saying you know what can these texts mean to us right now and, and how is that different? And I think all, all these kind of receptions and narratives, all art, you know, there's a subjectiveness to it. There, there's that connection. And so you can't tell someone that's the wrong way to read Ovid. Like if if Ovid or Hesiod or Homer give you a certain response, that's a valid response to have. Like you've read those words and you're experiencing it. So I don't know, like... I, Maybe I'm just, maybe I don't care so much. I don't know. I, I just feel very strongly that we should just be open to these kind of interpretations. <laughs> no, I think I think it's caring a lot in a different way, yeah. in a way that like I think I feel the same way, which is this that like I care a lot about these stories and, and the characters and everything, but I care more about like just kind of thinking about the intricacies and all the 
those all the different aspects yeah. of what we're just talking about like the things we don't know the things that have changed the things that are regional is yes, the thing that i've been yes. thinking about a lot lately like like you said of you know things just sprouting out of fifth century <laughs> athens it's like it's all athens yeah so what did everyone else think exactly and yeah i mean i think i think it's like about caring about it in that way without caring to like put anyone else down or yeah. make anyone else wrong one of the most entertaining criticisms I've ever gotten from this podcast was like the last time I ever name searched myself on Twitter because they hadn't tagged me and somebody was complaining without naming me at first <laughs> that there was a lit that was there was a mythology podcast I'm sorry in advance there's a cat about to jump up on <laughs> we'll see whether he interrupts um that there's a mythology podcast and she was like we don't criticize ancient cultures we revere them oh, or no. something like that probably not the word revere but it was very much like as if they were just above criticism on top of that she had a problem with me criticizing them because she believed i was american and so because america's a mess then i really can't criticize oh, ancient okay. cultures interesting yeah, added to the nonsense yeah. of it while also making me furious that someone <laughs> thought I was American and thinking I can't respond I'm to just... this. They did not tag me. Yeah. And so oh, I just have to let it go and then think about it for the next six months, which I am, because it was just so silly. Like, I don't have, I have no problem with them saying I can't critique the ancient world because that's utter nonsense. It's like, I definitely think more about the fact that part of it was that they believed I was American but it's just such an interesting thing that like people have that kind of visceral response yeah when I'm just like do you know what I'm doing with my show that you're mad about is spreading it to like hundreds of thousands of people who have no basis in classics and just picked up a podcast one day and I think that's badass yes. like 100%. yeah I, that's that's the thing that needs to be done is like spread these stories in that way where you're looking at the you know quote-unquote truth of it but the truth of it being that there is no truth of yeah. it and I think this is this is one of the things that I really came to grips with when I was teaching my ancient world through film class because initially you kind of go in I went in and I was like oh I'm gonna like tear all of these movies apart and then I realized you know how productive actually is that you know it's, it's a very it, and then gradually as the course went on it became much more about and the conversations that I was having with my students, it became much more about, okay, why was this particular interpretation of the classical world coming out at this time? So mm. Troy, Troy being a really good example of, with Achilles' relationship, Hollywood in 2004, not ready to show Brad Pitt in a gay relationship, like 100%. And we had that conversation, you know, if it was made today, do we think that they would go there? Do we think that, and obviously in Netflix's Troy, Fall of the City, they did go there mm -hmm. um, and they included those elements. And yeah, so it's kind of looking at these things as a product of their time and how they're a reflection of, you know, what's going what's going on. And I think that's a really interesting question because I think often these films, yeah, they get people interested in the ancient world and, and these novels as well, get people interested in the ancient world, spark an interest, then if people want to go and read the ancient sources, even better. But I think the really interesting conversation is, well, what is it telling us about the time that it's been created? What is this interpretation telling us about the people that created the interpretation, the audience expectations? You know, what, why was this why was this reception made at this time? I think is like something that I find really, really fascinating, like tying it in with the historical context and what's going on. 
I recently have rewatched some of those like Troy and Alexander yeah. and and 300. And yes. I think it's not a coincidence that all three of those movies came out in a like three year period, yeah, 100%. you know, and there's a little something that was going on in the Middle East at the time that I think is a pretty clear indicator of why those were made or or at least like part of it. Yeah. And, you know, there's a movie, this is not really classical reception, but that I have recently been reminded exists and can't quite believe it exists. Um, Kingdom of Heaven. Oh, yes. That's one of my dad's favorite films. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I have I have lots to say now about this. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that's another Orlando. Is it Orlando Bloom? Yeah, it's yeah, Orlando yeah, yeah. Bloom. It was like his height. Yes. It was like around. It was like a peak the, it historical was, epic. It, Exactly. It was like after Lord of the Rings yes. and when he was like making pirates yeah. and and Troy and, and Kingdom it's like, of Heaven. It's and... like post Gladiator when like the historical epic like came back in vogue after that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And Ava Green is in it. Yes. And on the cover she is wearing some like Middle Eastern yeah. garb and you're like, you're a white British woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Some of these movies like you watch at the time, you're like, oh, great, great movie. And then yeah. some of them just age terribly. And it's like, oh, that would never get made now. Um, oh, yeah. Like, and good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like Cleopatra. We also watched this during my Ancient World mm. 3 film. And I was like, oh, this is this is not aged well at all. Um, so, yeah, uh, they're, they're really, really interesting when we have these um, different perspectives. And yeah, like I said, I just, I just think we focus too much on the question of, you know, quote unquote, historical reality, when how can we even talk about that with myth? Because it's like, it's not history. It's different. Yeah, it's storytelling. It's myth. It's myth making. It is not his. It's not history. So it's not the key too. is the thing that people forget if you're not in this world, is that like we were saying with Plutarch we're talking about like sometimes a thousand yes. years like Homer is not nowhere near um Virgil like yeah you know, it's like let alone even Homer to the playwrights yes. to the tragedians like even that yeah we kind yeah. of we kind of I think sometimes and it's really easy to do this I, I do this even myself you forget the the vast gaps in in time between some yeah. of these texts you kind of just think of them oh they're all you know mythological narratives so they're all ancient I mean what is ancient myth? I mean we're talking you would never in like kind of postmodern history you would never talk about a novel that came out now in the same breath as a Victorian novel that's kind of what we're doing and it's well, like- I mean, that's even like that's not that long ago yeah. comparatively yeah. right the thing I've been doing lately to I forget when this has even come up for me, but my go-to is like suggesting that Shakespeare and I are are close (laughs) in time. You know, it's, it's more like that, even if not farther off from Shakespeare, but it's, it's such a like obvious one to use as a distinction of like, okay, you're comparing between Homer and say Ovid. We're talking a Shakespeare to now's breadth of time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so, and arguably, so when we're talking about, we, I think when we're talking about reception, we often have this divide between, okay, so there's like the ancient world and then there's like modern reception. And I'm like, but there's reception within the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Like for God's sake, like Virgil, hello. Virgil. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to go down that path of, you know, it's just, you know, Homeric fan fiction, because there is more to it than that. But mm-hmm. th- there's something to be said for that, that argument, right? You know, he, he clearly, when we talk about intertextuality, like that 
intertextuality is reception like but we talk about it in this different way and yeah so to think that we have this strict divide between well all the stuff in the ancient world is like the original stuff and like what we're doing now is reception Mm -hmm. I I think it's too simplistic because there's reception going on within the ancient world but it's not static it's always evolving in some way Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Today, more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical bill expert, finding savings can seem impossible. And who has the time? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and reviews your medical claims as they come in from your healthcare providers. Then HealthLock's technology flags and alerts you to any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and frauds to help you and your family save. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from selected past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save more than $130 million. Saving on medical bills starts with knowing where to look, and HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com.
when it comes to reception in the ancient world, or maybe not even reception, but this just made me think of it. But I think it also still runs back to what we don't have. Like I was just thinking about Ovid and, you know, in the vein of this and the way people often leap to Ovid as an example of like not a true myth because he was writing from the Roman period and from Rome in general, but, and as if that because his stories deviate from the extant Greek myths that he somehow made it all up. And I just want to think, I, I mean, again, this always comes up for me with Medusa because this is the thing that people love to hold on to in this very bizarre way. I mean, I love, I I think I hold on to her now as a, as a like way to counter the men who hold on to her in a misogynist way. So now she's just become my whole world yeah. because I just have to do it. But the idea that because Ovid makes clear that it was an assault, but Hesiod doesn't make clear that it was non-consensual, yeah. that, that obviously Ovid made it up is absurd. It's like, it's nonsense to suggest that Hesiod who does explicitly say that Poseidon lay with her that because he says lay with and Ovid says like essentially rape that that somehow Ovid made it up is like can fooling yourself you have absolutely no grasp on on how like myths have evolved or, or what we do do and do not have like no grasp on history to if you want to say that and I and I think it's really interesting the way that then things kind of work in cycles because you have like you said kind of Hesius it's that there's ambiguity there like again we can argue you know it's not incorrect for Ovid to say this because lay with that could mean anything I mean that's such a vague description right so so for Ovid to interpret that in a violent way that's completely within the realm of possibility. And then a lot of the, a lot in my classes, because I'm interested in art history as well, we look at kind of later art depictions of, mm. of a lot of the myths. So we kind of go through Ovid's tales and then we kind of look at, oh, and here are, you know, various artistic interpretations of the myth. And we kind of go and we, we see even in the art, this really broad set of interpretations you know sometimes these myths can be really romanticized like you know that they're all frolicking around and it was all kind of fun and then other paintings can be really really dark and visceral and Mm -hmm. it's like both of those pieces of art they're like picking up on different parts of the story Mm -hmm. or interpreting it in different ways and again we can also link this to you know the time of production because you know you see very much in renaissance art they go very much for the kind of like romantic angle and then the more modern art they you know a bit dark or different interpretations and also looking at which parts of the myth obviously in art they're kind of a snapshot and I always find it fascinating you know which parts of the myth are you trying to draw out in in this depiction especially with the metamorphosis um there's many paintings with like Actian and Diana, like seeing her bathe. And then it's like some, some of them show the kind of moment that Actian finds Diana. And then it's this very weird, you know, oh, I've seen these nude women like bathing and I shouldn't be here. Sometimes it's a very violent episode where he's already transforming. And then it's kind of foreshadowing that he's going to get ripped to pieces by these dogs. And so it, you know, the moment that they choose to highlight in these pieces of art as well, I think is really interesting. And um, yeah, I think my students always like looking at these depictions because it's fun to pick out, well, which part of the myth are they trying to show here? Like, does this hold true to 
the kind of text that we've just read? Is it a different interpretation? Is it a different flavor? Um, and so, yeah, when I think about reception, I don't just think about different texts. I like to think about art and, you know, film as well. And I just think all of, all of these ways, it just kind of, so many interpretations of these stories. And I think the more that we can grapple with these different interpretations and think about, as I said, well, what do they bring up for you? What are they signifying for you? How are we viewing this as opposed to, you know, when this painting came out in the 1600s, you know, how would they have viewed it? That There's such interesting conversations to have. And I don't think that that kind of negates this, we're doing quote unquote true mythology. It's like, <laughs> Like the, I just think it makes it more interesting, not, I think it makes it more interesting, more complex, you know, more nuanced. So absolutely. Uh, that, yeah. That's I, my TED talk. <laughs> no, as, as somebody who also came to this world partially from sort of an obsession with art history, yeah. like I, I get that completely. And all I think of in any moment, really, and anytime I think of like any kind of visual representation is Bernini, because like I could talk about either Apollo and Daphne or uh, Pluto and Proserpine like for eternity. Yeah. Um, Apollo and Daphne specifically just because we're talking about metamorphoses, but, and I've talked about this on the show before. Absolutely. Because I love it. So my favorite thing about seeing it in reality versus the photos is that essentially like you can stand at one end of the statue of Apollo and Daphne and you can see like this kind of almost beautiful look of like, Daphne you know trying to get away from him but it looks very it doesn't I don't know if it looks romantic but it doesn't look sad it just looks kind of like a thing that's happening and it's stunning and then you turn you go to the other side and she's a tree yeah so clever it's incredible and it's I mean Bernini in general is just one of my like favorite people to have ever existed but that one is just so unbelievable in terms of classical reception it blows my whole mind that shows like in one piece of art dependent on which perspective like oh, so true. <laughs> dependent on which literal perspective you are standing from that's a completely different statue and yeah. neither of those are wrong so that's like people at either end of the statue having an argument about well this statue is showing that and it's like yeah. well actually it's showing both at the same time and it just depends on where you're at at this moment in time a very literal version of what we're talking about that neither of those perspectives are the true one or the right one or the only one you can hold both of those at the same time and it doesn't yeah. one does not cancel out the other yeah and I think that that's I think I mean that's that's definitely a a piece of art that I've held on to for years and years and just kind of, I think, yeah, that's kind of my visual representation of of any kind of mythology is just to think about the two sides of that statue and how it's so, and I hate, I it's sad that it's hard to understand it without being there because I think it's important that everyone be able to like see that kind of thing. I, I mean, to delve into beyond Madeline Miller too. So, I mean, there are so many pieces of yeah. classical reception that have come out lately, like in the past 10 years, at least so many. What are some other ones that you kind of think of? So one of my favorites, and, and I say favorites, it's an odd choice of word because it also, it, it was like a lot of feelings and emotions um, and it was very visceral, was Pat Barker's Silence of the mm-hmm. Girls because like it is intense. Like it is an intense novel. Like it deals with a lot of violence. Like it is gritty, it is real, it is raw. And I think 
obviously, if your listeners don't know, so this is a novel that obviously tells the story of the Trojan War, but from Briseis's perspective. So it's very much centered on that idea of a female war slave and all of the sexual violence that goes into being in that position. And one of the things I find really interesting about Pat Barker, and I didn't realize this until I kind of finished reading the novel and then read the bio at the back and it and it made sense, is that she comes, you know, from the perspective of kind of writing war narratives as opposed mm. to coming from a classics perspective. And I felt that was a really interesting take because I think that's why it seems so real in terms of depicting the grittiness of war, because the other novels they've written are, you know, focused on like World War One, World War Two type narratives, you know, like trench warfare and like the darkness of that and the way in which they captured that real gritty, you know, reality of war. You know, sometimes I would read a chapter and it would just like, it was like visceral that it was just mm-hmm. like so raw. But at the same time, that does make it a tough read because it doesn't skimp on on the details of the harshness and the realities. And I think that that's something that is often missing or not necessarily missing, but a, a lot of these, a lot of interpretations tend to, you know, rightly or wrongly, you have a kind of romantic element or maybe they're just kind of trying to, give a fresh perspective on a story but this one was just like really really it just felt so real I felt like oh this is actually describing a war like this isn't heroic really at all this is like gruesome and brutal and yeah I just I thought that it was very very powerful um but yeah so like a tough read but in a good way yeah I read it when it first came out I mean I just remember thinking that it was such a an interesting adaptation and I think at the time I'd really only read like Song of Achilles yeah. I don't even know if I read Circe by then so I guess Circe hadn't even come out no because Circe is one of the really recent ones so yeah yeah other than like this year yeah. alone <laughs> but yeah I mean just so powerful and then she is writing I think the next one yes. about the Trojan women yeah I think she's kind of picking up the story because it kind of ended as the war was ending. And mm. I think she's picking up the story kind of like, well, what happens to these women that we've come into contact with after the war? Um, mm. So that that's super interesting. And in many ways that picks up on another one of my recent favorites that I read towards the end of last year, Natalie Haynes's A Thousand Ships, mm-hmm. which I loved. And I was just, I could have read, I, I wish it had been longer because I just loved how it wasn't just one character. It was like all these women that we see you know, across the Iliad. And then you're like, you're basically getting the fallout of the war, but from all of their perspectives. And like, I loved the way that it, it went, it moved between the characters and we were getting really quite a short period of time. But then these characters were then reflecting back on what was going on. And yeah, just so, so fascinating. I, I really, really loved that one, that that idea of, we always think, especially with these texts, you know, you focus on the main event being the war. But what about after? And I think, you know, the Odyssey is what What about after? But that's like one man. <laughs> this is, you know, well, what about all these women? You know, they're, they're all in the Iliad too. Like what happened to them, right? And I just, I loved that exploration of all of their characters. And I thought, I thought she did a really good job of, and, and the choices she made in the characterizations were really fun, I thought. 
I agree. That one is, it has to be on my list yeah. of favorites for sure. I mean, especially I think, and I think this is just what Natalie Haynes does well in general. Um, I've also just spent the past week watching her oh, talk yeah. about <laughs> books, including this one and yeah. Pandora's Jar, yeah. like literally ended that to come and talk to you today. Um, but I think she keeps it light mm. while also like focusing on the severity. Yeah. So you have, I mean, you have characters like Calliope and like Penelope who really make it quite funny yes. in addition to focusing on how serious and dark and, and horrible it all is. Yeah. I think, I mean, that, that she's she's one of the reasons I started talking to people yeah. on this show, which is a bizarre thing to say out loud between her and Bettany Hughes. Yeah. I was like, I guess I can talk to anyone. Yeah. Which I think, and I think what's really clever about that novel and taking that approach of kind of the focusing not just on one character but lots of different perspectives, I found that a really nice mirror to the Iliad because obviously everyone talks about the Iliad as being, you know, it's about the rage of Achilles and everything, but you're really getting an insight into lots of different male characters and you do different books focus on the events related to different men. So I really found that this was like a nice inversion of that in that we're then talking about the aftermath and then we have this female perspective and then it's jumping backwards and forwards. Um, And yes, I think there was a lightness to it and it really highlighted that women in the ancient world are not just one type of woman because we Mm -hmm. have this very multifaceted response. We saw the range of responses dependent on, you know, their class, their status, you know, immortal, mortal. Are they, are they in Troy? Are they on the losing side, the winning side? Are they back home waiting for their husbands? You really get a sense of, well, how is a war experienced through the eyes of the women that are related to or interact with all of these men? So I, I loved that. Absolutely. That one, I mean, it, it's just so broad and so detailed at the same time. And yeah, no, that one is absolutely one of my favorites. Another of my favorites is The Children of Jocasta. Oh, her. I have not read that. That's a good one. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. But I also have a really big thing for Thebes. Okay. Um, <laughs> my, the reason I got into all of this was writing a novel based around Cadmus and Harmonia of Thebes. And so I've sort of always had a big love of them. And I think that they're I mean, not them personally, because there's really no myths about them as characters, but Thebes in general is done dirty by the Athenian tragedians. (laughs) That's a very good one, especially for someone like Jocasta, which I don't know if you've read her Pandora's Jar, which also just came out. But that one is not fiction, but it's covering all of these famous women from a more historical and how things went wrong. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very well done and very entertaining. Um, but Jocasta's was particularly interesting of just looking at how Jocasta yeah. has been treated over the millennia yeah, yeah. and where her story went wrong and all these different things. Or, I mean, she's a, a good example of what happens to so many women in mythology, which is just that it's not looked at like how they feel or what yeah. they care about and why not. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think this was one of the things, so not just with um, Pat Barker's Silence of the Girls, but then Emily Hauser, obviously, with her Golden Apple trilogy, the first one of those also focuses on Briseis and also Briseis as well. Um, That's a bit more, that's less gritty and more the kind of romantic, not romanticized, because there there is grittiness to it. But yeah, it's um, slightly lighter in tone, I would say, than um, Silence of the Girls. But again, this idea that you know we're kind of looking from these different perspectives and 
yeah, there's this sense of, with Briseis, it's like they're just kind of there in the Iliad and we don't ever get a sense of, well, what would they be feeling in this moment? What would they be thinking? How, you know, they don't, they don't just appear in a vacuum and, and giving that backstory, it, it can really, I think, make us think about the interpretation in the Iliad as well. Absolutely. I bought whatever of her books I could find after you <laughs> mentioned her when we were first talking about doing this. But I think in Canada, I can't actually get For the Most Beautiful, yes. which I take it. Is that the first That's one? That's the first or is one. It... So there's okay. For the Most Beautiful, For the Winner, and, and for, the immortal. for the Immortal. Yeah. So For the Most Beautiful is the first one. And that focuses on Trojan War um, from female characters' perspectives. Then we've got, I can't remember which way around. One of them is... Um, centered on kind of like Jason and the Argonauts. Um, and then the other one is on Hippolyta. For the immortal is the one um, about the Amazons. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's the last one. So there's one in the middle um, and that's the one about, um, yeah, it's on Jason and the Argonauts, but from the perspective of Atalanta. Atalanta, yes. Mm. It's very I really actually liked that interpretation of Atalanta, especially because again, she's always like given this example, look, there were female warriors too. And I'm like, but we know nothing about like this. Like, no. So let's focus on her then. Like, don't just hold her up as like this. Oh, look, there's this one female. Okay. Well, let's talk about her. Like, let's do some interesting things. You know, there's so, there's so little to find yeah. about her. One of the things I loved so much, cause I was, when I was writing her entry in my book mm. is that there are two Atalantas, one from Boeotia and one from uh, Arcadia and they are the same yeah every single thing that's the same happens to them but that apparently there are some who believe that there were actually two. Oh, interesting <laughs> and I just think yeah it's such a perfect example of regional mm. well, adaptations um Aphrodite also like mm -hmm. Homer has this completely different version to Hesiod and like Obviously, I think everyone focuses on Hesiod's version because it's like <laughs> more, so more, more interesting. <laughs> um, that's always one of the first stories that I tell in myth class. And then I'm like, welcome to myth, guys. Uh, <laughs> you're born from the sea. Um, and it's the first episode of my podcast yeah. where I coined the phrase um, castration foam. Oh, that perfect. People I, still quote to yeah, me all the time. <laughs> I, I just um, go, I, I just um, describe it as like sea foam. And then I like wait the penny to drop that there's like this <laughs> connection and that that's one of the things I've really missed about teaching teaching online that I I miss those like moments of realization uh when I'm telling these mythical tales <laughs> especially like the yeah the castration and then the birth of Aphrodite and all these things and I'm just like oh I wish I was there to you know see their reactions because you know you think Oh, I'm going into this mythology class and I'm going to listen to my professor and maybe this is going to be serious. And then I like talk about these stories and sometimes their face is like, what is, what class is this? I'm, like, I'm like, this is great. This is the most fun you will have. It, it's the best. Yes. I mean, I always say that the story that made me really think like this needs to be told in a comedic way <laughs> is pacify and the bull okay and so yeah this this is the greatest <laughs> line one of the greatest lines from um madeline miller's book i actually um put a oh amazing put a, <laughs> put a um little 
thing in my book. Um, yes, because I, I obviously explain, I'm like, so, and there's this bull and like we're going through and then you can like see the cogs like turning in their mind. And then I'm like saying, then I'm like, so yeah, like, you know, this is what happens. And then they're like, this is really weird. I'm like, yeah, Crete is like seriously messed up. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think my first slide is like, WTF is going on in Crete. <laughs> like, what is going on there? We need to explain. And yeah, I loved Madeline Miller's interpretation of it because um, she said, um, you know, Cersei goes there and is like trying to help pacify, like give birth to the Minotaur. And she's like, what is going on? Like, how did this happen? Like all this stuff. And then uh, Daedalus is like trying to, you know, go around the houses and like kind of say, oh, well, I made this machine and I'm not really sure. And then then Madeline Miller describes it. She says, oh, please, my sister spat out. The world will be ended before you stammer to your finish. I fucked the sacred bull. All right, now get the thread. <laughs> I'm like, that's just the best line I'm like just tell it like it is this is just so amazing yeah if only um if only the ancient sources just said it like that rather than <laughs> right it just you're like okay she had a bull contraption, contraption. made yeah. before her yeah. all to do this yeah. and like it's darker when you consider it as a curse yeah. and like I do think that's important as yes. well but at the same time you have to admire the ingenuity, <laughs> right? And like, like I say, I say to those students and I, I like try and explain it really slowly. And then I'm like, and it is exactly the things that you are thinking about how this work. It's probably exactly doing that. And I'm like, it yeah. is as weird and wacky as, you know, you think it is. And, I'm, and like you said, yeah, we really should, we sh really should give a round of applause for the ingenuity there, um, you know. We, yeah, we yeah. we can't we can't look down on that like that. Was, <laughs> and then, no. like you said, very dark background, but an ingenious solution to that dark background. <laughs> exactly. You just you have to look at both, yeah. and like I, you know, I will always come at it from a place that is sympathetic yeah. to the victims and the survivors and women in general. And we, you know, we go there, but also it's absurd it's an and absurd hilarious and story. crazy, and like it's so many things yeah. that just made me think like. Why does no one tell these myths in a way that is as funny yeah. as they are? Because I mean, there's that that's funny, but there's also ones that are like obviously comedic, yeah. like say like the Homeric yes. hymn to Hermes. Yeah. It's the funniest thing yeah. I've ever read. <laughs> like, I love it when yeah, those Homeric hymns, like yeah, especially the one to Hermes. That is, um, yeah, that can be quite because uh, so so many of these myths as well as you said they deal with some really really heavy topics and then when you get like this kind of comedic version or there are there are certain mythical tales that you can't look at in any way other than being like very hilarious because they're just like so out there and this is one of these situations where I'm like as you said we're just gonna sit here for a moment and just digest what I've just said and you know there, I'm sure you have a lot of questions. I don't have the answers to how it all worked, but we're just going to accept that apparently there was this contraption and that's how it worked. So, My favorite thing is, is to experience people as they try to understand. Yes. <laughs> this yeah. is exactly why I miss the teaching in person, like watching, yeah. watching live the like brain the brain moving and the processing and then like this kind of look of horror on people's faces and then like amusement confusion kind of like am I is she saying what I think she's saying and I just had to be 
I just have to say, yes, I'm exactly yes. saying what you think I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, it is as wild yeah. and crazy as you think. Yeah. Or I mean, one of my other go-tos for comedic value is, I think it's a Homer came to Aphrodite. And it's just where Hephaestus traps her in and the Ares net. in the, in yeah. the net. Yeah. Like, it's it's just so good. It's all just so silly and like they I mean they clearly knew it was funny yeah. especially with Hermes but I think that they clearly knew that Aphrodite and Ares getting caught in a net and also all the gods yes! laugh at Hephaestus the like they all literally are like what the hell are you yeah. doing dude like just get over it just let her fuck Ares yeah. like it's gonna happen yeah uh, yeah you're right it's like the actual gods in the in the myth they're all like in on the joke so it's yeah. like I think we're allowed to laugh at this because like <laughs> In, in the myth, they're laughing. So, like, clearly this is meant to be funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just so it's so ripe for interpretation. Yeah. And I think, you know, these days, all the the novels of reception are, you know, more, more serious. Yeah. But I think a lot of them have, like, pull on those lighthearted threads, too, because you, you can't avoid them, especially, like, in Circe. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's one of my favorite things about teaching myth. Like, sometimes I talk to my friends, you know, outside outside of classics and you know I use a lot of memes in my class slides and often I post about these on social media um and you know myth is ripe for memes and they're like that's your job and I'm like yeah isn't it great <laughs> I'm just like this this is the greatest thing ever you know we can we can do this and that there can be humor and as you said I think some of these receptions are so significant for shining a light on these important issues and making us have these really significant conversations but at the same time there's also we we shouldn't forget like the fun and the enjoyment that brought us to myth in the first place I think and there there are lots of things that are problematic lots of things that we have to unpick and are challenging to interpret um but at the same time, I think the joy in these stories is that there's also the, the opposite of that, that we can find comedy sometimes. We can find, you know, there are joyous moments. There are characters that we can connect with that, you know, don't repulse us in the way that other characters <laughs> do. So, yeah, there's something for everyone in there. Absolutely. And there are so many that, like, you love to hate yes. too, right? I mean, Where, I love I mean, to hate Odysseus. I mean... Yeah, I know everyone does. I love to love Odysseus. Yeah. I recognize he's very problematic and he has all of these problems, but. But I do share I in him. your dislike for Aeneas. So, you know. Perfect. <laughs> and I mean, I say this as a Romanist who prefers the Aeneid as a text. And like, I'm, I'm more naturally interested in what's going on in that text than I am the Homeric epics. But even with that, I can still, I will still pile on Aeneas at any any given any given opportunity <laughs> I mean with Aeneas he's either awful or boring yeah yes like, I don't think he has anything <laughs> in between he's either like forgetting that he has a wife as Troy burns around him he is leaving Dido after everything or he is just doing absolutely nothing yeah and he's just kind of there for it yeah. all <laughs> yeah like there is I, it's it's almost weird that it's called the Aeneid because there are like so many more interesting characters in many ways. Um, like Turnus is fascinating. Like, yeah, um, Dido, obviously. Um, and that there's lots of interesting, you know, things with the gods and like 
various kind of like colonization things going on in the Aeneid and just, just super, super interesting. But Aeneas as a character, I, I do not warm to him uh, <laughs> in the same way that maybe, yeah, I know he's meant to be this kind of archetypal Roman hero, but yeah, you're right. Either, either being very bad at being a Roman hero or when he is a being a you know quote unquote Roman hero that's actually very boring <laughs> yeah he's boring he's kind of benign yeah. he's just kind of like meh. there yeah. he's just like meh. okay you're here yeah. <laughs> yeah but there were there was many a meme um about the forgetting his wife in my in my uh, intro to classical literature course that I did we, we looked at the Aeneid quite a lot and um yeah it's very much he like gets out and then he turns around and thinks oh I think I've forgotten someone. <laughs> you think? <laughs> I also think it comes in like book two book or something, two. doesn't yeah, it? It's book yeah. Two. It's the Where you're of like, Troy. Yeah. We've got through an entire book of this poem without any even the audience realizing you have a yeah. wife. Well she kind, like, she kind of like turns up and she's scared about leaving and then you know, it, it I mean it it's very emblematic of the whole, you know patriarchal line that's so intrinsic to this like Roman concept of pietas you know you want to not just look after your family gods but also you know your family and how do you transfer power in your family where it's through the through the male line and then there's this new link to the state and that's why that image of him holding his son's hand and carrying his father that's like peak pietas like right there and then it's like yeah, but in in order to fulfill that, you have to forget your wife, which and just it's just like, and and he just she just kind of like appears in book two and then disappears very quickly, and it's like okay, well I guess Kreus is over then. Like ne- next stop Lavinia. Um, so it's like oh, which which is a novel that's on my to read list. Um, the Lavinia mm. novel by um by Ursula. I don't know how to say her last name. Le Gwen, maybe? Oh, Le Gwen, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. That, I didn't know she wrote. That's crazy because she's like a very famous science fiction Yeah, author. so she has written uh, a novel called Lavinia and it's about Lavinia's life like before Aeneas gets there, mm. as he gets there, uh, and then like once they're married as well, which is like, you know, there's so much creative license with that because we basically only... She is like... We only oh really God. know. We only really know about her as this she's the person that people are fighting over in the Aeneid like we don't have a yeah. real sense of her character so to, so to explore that facet I think yeah that's on my to read list this summer I think hopefully yeah. yeah that would be really fascinating because yeah I mean she's just like not there yeah she's very important as a concept yes. but not as a person exactly and it's kind of the same with Creusa and Dido mm-hmm. to some extent you're right that all of these women in the Aeneid, they're, they're important, as you said, as concepts, as part of Aeneas's journey, but actually that exploration of their characters is something, especially, yeah, Lavinia, as you said, she's just like this figure that is, you know, integral to the war, but, you know, we don't know, oh, right. she's just there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's just there, yeah. yeah. I remember, so I notoriously, uh, like, don't have time to read a whole epic before covering yeah. it in the podcast simply don't and so I just make it work and also that's just how my personality and my brain works is that I'm just gonna go with it and figure it out as I go but when it came to the Aeneid and knowing very little about it before I started covering it on this podcast I did not know going into it that he was gonna have this wife discovery in book two <laughs> so I got into like probably episode two and was like guys 
he had a wife. wife. And I think it almost like made it a more entertaining way to to hear it through the podcast, which is like even yeah. <laughs> even your host didn't realize he had a wife. Yeah, because she's that inconsequential to his life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that even us as readers sometimes forget that she exists. So yeah, kind of kind of hilarious. But yeah, so I really want to read that Lavinia one. Uh, and also the other one that I have on my list for this summer is the new one about Ariadne that has just come yeah. out. Yeah, I really want to read that one because yeah, that's a that's a super fascinating story. Like when you think about all of the ways that she, you know, with the minor, she, you know, she fits in with our whole what's going on in Crete thing. Um, and then, you know, she rejected on the beach and then Dionysus comes along and I'm like, you know, this is, this is a good character. Like there's a lot going on here. And she kind of intersects with lots of different stories that we know of. So I think, I think that will be a really good one. They're my, they're yeah. my two on my to read list which is you know ever increasing <laughs> oh my god I I don't even know how to deal with it right now even like next to me I because I bought those Emily Hauser books I've never read Mary Renault and I have her books and so there's just like this oh there's enormous... so many um the Penela uh, the Penelope as well Margaret mm, Atwood I yeah. haven't read that and that's like seen as like a that classic um that one's good but it's easier because it's written in verse oh so okay. it's a lot it's quick a quick read. read I think I read it in a night ah. I read it like a decade ago okay. so I yeah because like revisit that, that's it, but... arguably I would say the early that's like the the first one of these kind of female-centered um, narratives and yeah I yeah. I've heard about it so much and because it seems like one of the earliest I probably should get around to reading that uh but yeah um, and also I just learned as well I, when I was doing some research that there's also a novel called Ithaca by Adele Geras uh, and this sounds pretty interesting so it's about life on Ithaca while Odysseus was away and it's from the perspective of like multiple characters like most of them made up but they're kind of like intersecting with the events that we know happened while Odysseus was away so I thought well that might be something fun because you know that obviously has so much room for creative license because mm -hmm. we don't know what was going on there. But just to kind of think about that day-to-day -day existence of what is going on in the home when the hero is away. You know, we think we think so much about, you know, their return and it's all through that framework that just to think about like the day-to-day -day existence, I think that sounds like a pretty intriguing concept, I think, to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, thinking about it as just like a, the outside observer yes. watching what's happening to Penelope yeah. and then watching Telemachus. Exactly. Like, I think that would be yeah. like a super interesting perspective, especially because I really don't like Telemachus. So. No, he's the worst. Yeah, he's just so yeah. whiny. Uh, I have an episode titled yeah. Telemach Telemachus is a whiny little bitch. Yeah, like I, <laughs> I um, came across like my original translation of the Odyssey that I had from like my high school and it still mm -hmm. had like all my annotations in. And like so many of my annotations were like, stop crying, Telemachus. Like, like, why are you crying? Like, why are you doing this? Like, just, I was really savage about him. I was like, I was savage at 17. And like, also like with Odysseus as well, like, terrible leader like all the way through I'm just like I'm like oh more men lost there we go so yeah so my going back to those annotations was very funny yeah that would be great no that's that sounds great I'll have to put that on my list yeah. oh you know what I want to read um which I haven't read and I should have is home fire what is that the I have not read that home fire is Antigone oh yeah I think it's by 
Yeah, the author is Camilla Shamsey. There's so many. Like, I'm discovering new ones every week. I'm like, oh, I've got a grasp on this because I'm teaching it. And I, I bring in all these examples. And then people say, oh, well, you must have read this. And I'm like, oh, God, there's more. I can't keep up, which is great for these, these kind of conversations. But yeah. I know. It's endless. You know, it's... um. It's modern, I think, to oh, a modern adaptation oh, of Antigone, and I uh, I don't think I would have heard about it from, like, the world of mythology. I actually heard about it just because it was published shortly after I left Penguin Random House, and so my friends knew to send to it me. to me. Yeah. So, like, I had some little ins with that, too. I also, and this is not not more, like, women-centric, but I don't know if you've read House of Names. No. It's by Comtoibin, um, and he wrote, it's... Uh, the Oristaya, basically. Okay, I would like but, that, yeah. Yeah, very sympathetic to Clytemnestra. Oh. oh, that's interesting. I would like that. Definitely recommend that one. It's beautifully written. Also, I mean, he's just an incredible writer. Yeah, that one was sort of, that came right in turning point in my life. I actually remember finding a kind of like re- resurgence of mythological love while I was still at Penguin Random House because the announcement for it came across my desk for like, we I handled contracts so the contracts came and then we would it would have like one step like one sentence <laughs> of what the book was about yeah. and that's would be my introduction to yeah. it because it would have been like long before it was written and it literally just said like a retelling of the Oristaya from or something and I was like oh <laughs> like, my god you've got me send me all the copies now exactly. immediately <laughs> And then I left the company and I just remember thinking like messaging all of my friends being like, okay, so here's the yeah. thing. I'm going to need you to send yeah. me like House of Names the very second you have it. And yeah, it was sort of one of those like big, yeah. big moments of like, oh, I still love mythology. Yeah. Maybe I should do that. Yeah. yeah. it's um Yeah. And I think I, I definitely had that sense when I went back and read, as I said, coming to teaching and then kind of revisiting a lot of these stories that I think I'd just taken for granted and then really digging into them through the, this myth course, I've just, yeah, it's kind of re, uh, re-invoked this kind of feeling of, oh, yeah, like, this is what I fell in love with. Like, this is why I ended up taking classics. Like, I read the Odyssey in school and was like, yes, this is this is cool. And, you know, I, I want to do more of this. And I don't know what I want to do with my life. So I'll take classics at university. <laughs> and it like, turns out that's still what I'm doing with my life. So uh, it's turned out pretty well for me. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's funny. I was like, I like these stories. I would like to read some more of these. And then here I am now working at university teaching it so yeah I can't complain no I that same thing for me where I literally like started with the classics minor and I was like looking through the course catalog and I was like who am I getting yeah. like, I'm gonna take classics courses for every yeah. single one of my um electives and then so like within two weeks of being at Concordia I switched to a double major and like, yeah obviously <laughs> that's what I'm gonna do yeah and so, yeah, it was 100% just where I was like, well, the classics is just because I'm a nerd. I'm doing a whole major in classics oh, yeah. just because I'm a huge dork. Yeah, I um, I was very much, oh, I'm going to do classics at undergraduate because I like it and I'm interested in it. And I, you know, it, it would just be like a really good degree for me to have. And then I'm going to do postgraduate law. Well, that was my plan. I was like, I was like, it'd be a really great foundation. I get three years of doing all these things. It will act as a really good foundation to, you know, go and get that law career. And then I was like, oh, actually, I think I'm going to carry on doing this. So, um, and 10 years later, I still am and talking to you. So there we go. <laughs> I mean, clearly all works yes. out. I mean, this is much more fun than law. I think Perhaps so. less lucrative, but. Definitely less lucrative. <laughs> 
uh, as an adjunct instructor, yes, definitely less lucrative, but I, I agree. Way more fun. Way more fun. This has been so much this fun. Has Thank been you, so Victoria, much fun. so much. Yeah, this has been, yeah, I love to, I normally always just have these conversations with students, obviously, and then I've really missed, and because everything's been online, I've really missed having just like a general conversation about myth, and now I'm like, oh, this is so great. Um, so yeah, I'm really, this really thanks for having me on, and just to yeah, chat about everything. I think we, we covered a bit of everything there. <laughs> we really yeah. did, yeah. Oh, nerds, thank you so much for listening. I just love these conversations. So many of them I recorded like even a couple of months ago now, and then I get to re-listen to them as I'm editing them for you. And I learn things all over again. And I'm reminding, reminded of, of just the fun and incredible conversations I get to have with such incredibly intelligent and nerdy people. <laughs> it's just the best. So I hope you love this episode. Like I said, next Friday will be a reading of the Argonautica before we return to another conversation episode the week following. Thank you all. You're the absolute best. I am Liv and I love this shit. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Today, more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical bill expert, finding savings can seem impossible. And who has the time? 
HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and reviews your medical claims as they come in from your healthcare providers. Then, HealthLock's technology flags and alerts you to any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and frauds to help you and your family save. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from selected past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save more than $130 million. Saving on medical bills starts with knowing where to look, and HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com.